You're listening to Amphibicast. Hey everyone, thanks for joining me tonight. I am very happy to have Mark Mandika of the Amphibian Foundation, and we're going to talk about bridging the gap, how the scientific community and the general public can work together towards a common goal, and in this case, conservation. So, Mark, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. Why don't you tell us about yourself and you know what your role is in the Amphibian Foundation? Oh, th- thanks, and it's great to be here. Um, yeah, I'm the executive director and one of the co-founders of the Amphibian Foundation here in Atlanta. And, you know, how did you become involved in this? Like, what, what, what led you to co-founding the organization? And, you know, how did you, how, how did this become an interest for you? And how did you turn that interest into a you know, very, very well-established foundation that works towards preservation? Oh, thanks. Yeah. Well, you know, my whole life I was been very interested in amphibians, uh, specifically frogs when I was younger. Um, you know, and so when I got into college, I started, um, studying amphibian biology, getting involved in research and loving every minute of it. And, you know, as, as time went on, the amphibians at my field sites were, were getting, were getting harder to find, you know, and it was, it was, um, very concerning and, and clearly getting worse in a, what I considered to be a very short period of time. And, you know, so over the years, I shifted my gears from just basic research to more conservation. And it seemed like every year it was harder to find amphibians. So every year I focused more of my time on the, on the conservation, basically culminating in giving up basic research altogether and focusing full-time on the conservation. Um, it, that's when we started the Amphibian Foundation four years ago. Now, can you just discuss some of the foundation's goals and what, you know, how, how are you guys working towards achieve these goals? Because I know the general focus seems to be conservation, but you also do have some very specific research projects in addition to that that are geared towards conservation. Yeah, absolutely. And so one thing that we really were um, really focused on was creating a model that was kind of impervious to outside influences. I always feel and felt like amphibians were never given uh, a priority. And you know, I've worked for institutions that were even conservation-minded, and, and amphibians were more of an afterthought. And I, and I was always very frustrated with that. So I wanted to uh, create a nonprofit that would keep amphibians as the high priority and then also be able to support our own conservation initiatives internally, meaning not have to worry about priorities of grant funders or other things, you know, that we could, once we got this online, we could keep our focus on amphibians and support ourselves and not have to worry about any outside influences. So, you know, we are, we are getting there. It's been a long process. Um, but the research that we do is on critically endangered and imperiled species that are, you know, in, in risk of going extinct and they don't really have time to waste. So we've basically um, spend about 50% of our time 
doing this this research in 50% of our time, you know, educating the public and, and creating kind of compelling dynamic educational programs, which really serve our mission because we're, we're changing public perception, especially with the young kids. And we're um, supporting our uh, research initiatives through the revenue that we can generate from these programs. I definitely agree with you that, um, and again, one of the other reasons why I founded this podcast was I felt that in the herpetological community, and that community is extremely broad, we'll, we'll just say that to include anyone who has any relationship with, with what would classically be considered, you know, uh, herps, amphibians are always sort of given the back seat, and I often found that any discussion of amphibians or amphibian-related issues was generally either buried in a very obscure, obscure journal, or it might just be a footnote. And there was so little attention paid to such substantial issues. I mean, for example, uh, chytrid. It's not something that everyone is necessarily aware of, yet it is having such a profound effect on us. And I definitely agree that amphibians do take a back seat, especially to more, um, let's just say, I think people tend to be more comfortable with reptiles, despite the fact that they are so dramatically different, even on an evolutionary level, from amphibians, that it's very it's very easy for them to get lost in the fray. So it is it is very refreshing to see that now in in the time that we live in, people are focused more on their approach as a specific clade rather than just lumping them in with every other you know every other exotic. So I mean, one of the things that I've also noticed in you know, the, the progression of this podcast and my conversations with these different people is that there are different, as I said earlier, there are different members of this community. You have people who are hobbyists, people who are breeders, people who are scientists, people who are involved with conservation. I mean, do you think that there was a line sort of drawn in the sand between different members of the community? Meaning, like, is there a line drawn between biologists and the general public? I mean, would, for example, say someone who is not a member of the scientific community, say someone who just happens to really enjoy frogs, do you think that they might get sort of intimidated in participating in the scientific process because they themselves don't have the don't have the credentials? And on the other end, do you think that people who are in the scientific community might be intimidated about embracing the general public to sort of work hand in hand? I mean, I know that you guys are very, very involved in community outreach. What's, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, that, that's a great question. Thank, thank you. You know, and and we we go out of our way to address that concern right there. You know, uh, I think in in some ways there are lines that are established. You know, and it maybe it's just that there's not enough interaction. Maybe it's that simple. And so we um, we address that by trying to um, create events and um, situations and projects that would blur that line, you know, that would involve a lot of engagement with our research team and the community, or um, we have basically unlimited opportunities for people to get involved, um, you know, 
depend and it's it's not does not depend on on your skill set or uh, how much education you've had you know even if you don't have much time to devote we we have found a way to get anyone who wants to get involved um involved and that includes field work so we're we're bringing people out there uh, with uh you know waiters and dip nets that have never done that before it's very rewarding uh and and i feel like you know it's it's blurring that line that you mentioned but it's also greatly increasing our capacity because there are just more people paying attention to amphibian populations and the amphibian declines that are happening all around us so I, I think that, you know, <clears throat> there are tons of ways to blur that line. Um, and, and certainly the training, it, it matters, you know, and like um, uh, I am grateful for having spent so much time, you know, in, in formal study with great advisors that were inspiring. So we we try and return that in, in our programming by providing lots and lots of opportunities to work with really in, endangered species that need the attention and 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 we just try to get people really kind of pumped to to help out now that's the community-based approach that i know the amphibian foundation sort of embraces i mean how do you i mean how would you go into the community and actively engage someone to participate in say like a field study or or an education campaign well, in that way, we're we're lucky that we're in a metro area, you know. So we're in Atlanta, and I had uh, now this is going back quite a few years, maybe six six years. I had this idea um, where we could um, just have workshops because here in Atlanta there are 28 species of native amphibian. That's insane. Cause I, I'm not from here. I moved here and I was like, what? There's 28 species um, from the Northeast. And you know, there's not nearly that many. So, um, you know, I thought, wow, I bet most people don't know that. So, you know, I started putting together these just amphibian workshops where I go through all 28 species and go through their natural history and where, you might be able to find them in the area. And so I put this talk together and I was invited to give it for the Atlanta Science Tavern. And I was expecting like six people. There were a hundred people there. And so that is what, that's the night that I consider kind of the birth of our biggest community science project, which is our Metro Atlanta Amphibian Monitoring Program. And now we have over 30 sites which are monitored by volunteers that have been, you know, trained um, through these workshops and, and on their own. We have a very um, comprehensive website too, and um, so that it's, I'm I'm very proud of how that program has developed because when we give these workshops, so we always give them for free. We try to do them throughout all different uh, areas and neighborhoods in Atlanta, and they're always well attended. So that makes it easy for us because if you just give these workshops and you know we'll bring some live animals too um so that we get people from like you know, all age groups at these things but that's been a really great way to get people involved and so we have 
uh, special projects list that people could sign up for. And they, they just get an email anytime some opportunity comes out either to help us build something at the foundation or to go out into the field. Um, and so that's been another great way to get people involved. But we first we hook them in at these workshops or, or other kind of free events that we do in the city, you know, uh, we usually focus on amphibians and then also we do some reptile um, engagement as well, particularly for the reptiles that people like hate, you know, we cover snapping turtles and copperheads, you know, so. Oh, who doesn't love um, snapping turtles? <laughs> <clears throat> we love them, but people love to hate them, you know, so we, we've done some snapping turtle events and we get a lot of people at those too. So it's, it's pretty interesting. We, we, we actually, we have a decent sized snapping turtle population up here where I live and um, mm -hmm. they're not really, no one really bothers with them because they're so intimidating. I mean, it probably, with the exception, I mean, we, we, we have a sea turtle population that kind of comes and goes, but um, they're probably, yeah, they're probably the largest reptile and definitely the largest turtle on Long Island. So people kind of get scared of them. And years ago at my first job, I was actually training with someone and there was a snapping turtle in the middle of the road. And me being the person that I am, I said, look, just do me a favor. Just, just stop. He goes, why? I said, just, just stop. He goes, you're not going to, I said, yeah, I am. So I kind of, <laughs> I kind of just got behind it. I, I picked it up. I ran it across the road and I had people, what's the matter with you? What are you nuts? That thing's going to bite your hands off. I'm like, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm like, all right, you're off the road. So, but I can, I mean, I, I think that one of the other reasons, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, when you do a, a presentation with live amphibians, it doesn't always have the same, uh, I guess, wow factor, you could call it as reptiles, meaning if you bring a large constrictor or a, you know, or, or a caiman or something like that into a group setting, it's easier. Number one, it's easier for people to see who might be sitting like in the back if it's a crowded event. But it, it's just like when I've done outreach myself it's it's kind of it's kind of difficult because you've got this little tiny table and you know frogs and toads are generally with the exception of you know a, a few species are generally kind of small i mean is that really why you guys would include reptiles into your into your effort and presentations <clears throat> no no the, we really focus just on the reptiles that that people despise but at these workshops we do it you know so we well, we, cause we're, we often focus on, um, salamanders because, you know, in my feeling that people really don't know much about salamanders and, and, you know, the people that don't love salamanders are people that haven't met them yet. You know, that, that's my, my feeling on that. So we, we really try to focus heavy on that. And, and here in Atlanta, our native salamander species are particularly charismatic. So, you know, we just show you know, you show them a spotted salamander or a marbled salamander, you know, and um, and we have them <clears throat> just right there so, so people can get up pretty close. Now, when we're doing more generic events, we have a, you know, a poodle-sized cane toad can't hurt, you know, that, that can <laughs> yeah. be seen from across the room. Yeah. And that, <clears throat> that gets some attention. Now... As far as the Amphibian Go Foundation goes, it's it's sort of a family endeavor with you, correct? You have your 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 wife and your son right. are involved. Okay. Um, now your son had yes, was involved. Yes, but now with... it's. Oh, go ahead. No, no, I'm sorry. I just your son. Uh, he named Tuffy, didn't he? 
he did. And uh, my son is is 12 now, and he is still the official namer of our kind of our education ambassador animals. But he's always been gifted with naming. And when he was like, I can't remember the exact year, but he was around three or four when he named Tuffy, the last Rab's fringe limb tree frog. And so that name really stuck. I, I, it's funny because I had read the article several years back and I sort of followed the, the phenomenon until Tuffy un, unfortunately passed away. And I remember when I was doing my research into, you know, trying to, you know, get you onto the program, I looked and I was like, wow, I was like, that was his son who named Tuffy. I was like, that's, that's pretty amazing. Um, I mean, as far as that goes, I was, I was, I was like, I, I was kind of starstruck, I guess would be the word. Um, I was like, wow, that's, that's pretty amazing. I, um, I mean, in terms of the whole situation with Tuffy, just for, for, for listeners who might not necessarily be familiar, can you explain what that situation was and how it panned out? Uh, I can. Um, so, um, well, Tuffy is a, a gliding, was a gliding tree frog species from um, Panama. And so um, they, <clears throat> it, it's already a, in a pretty endangered group of frogs, the genus Echnomiohyla. Um, and so um, at the Atlanta Botanical Garden, um, staff there now this was before i got there so we're, we're talking like 2004 and 5 uh staff there with uh, in, in collaboration with zoo atlanta were <clears throat> aware um through the research of uh, the karen lipsis lab at the university of maryland the trajectory of chytrid fungus in panama so it was making its way eastern east and it was just wiping out up to 85% of the amphibians in its wake. So it was just basically like a, a death wave of this fungus as it was moving through Panama. So um, the botanical garden um, here in Atlanta and the zoo went down to Panama ahead of the fungus and basically just grabbed any amphibian they could find. Okay, so... <laughs> It was it was um, kind of chaotic in a way, you know, and it was kind of likened to just grabbing things out of a burning building, you know. So um, that's a great analogy, Roger, right? I mean, yeah. it's it, it has the same sense of panic, and um, <clears throat> so the frogs were packed up and brought back. And, you know, a lot of these things were, were never kept in captivity before. Um, and, and there was no one to ask, you know, <laughs> for help. You know, this is just like, we're just trying to figure this out as we go. So um, four years later, I started working there. Um, the Panamanian collection was um, established at that point. But in those four years, <clears throat> There were no longer any female Rab's fringe limb tree frogs in captivity, um, and none had been seen in Panama since that initial collection, or maybe a year or two later. So the surveys continue, uh, and then in captivity, there are only two males, one at the Botanical Garden and one on exhibit at the zoo, 
Um, and then the one at the zoo died. So leaving this last frog, the last known Rab's fringe limb tree frog was at the Atlanta Botanical Garden and I was in charge of its care. Um, and so that was a lot of pressure, you know, and, and it was a horrible situation because as the surveys continued, you know, it can't prove extinction, but as the surveys continued in Panama without any sign, it just becomes more and more likely that they're gone from the wild. Um, so, you know, um, National Geographic was interested in coming and photographing the frog. Um, and I was like, you know, of course, you know, that what a great opportunity to get the message out about amphibians and amphibian declines. And, you know, Tuffy was a very large frog about the size of your hand. Um, and so I just knew, you know, some really nice photos of him might go a really long way to carrying this message uh, of what I consider to be this huge conservation failure. You know, the species is now ex extinct. Um, so they came and photographed him. Um, Joel Sartori came and photographed him, got some great pictures. And then the magazine wanted to write up an article about the frog for, to accompany the pictures. And that's when they were pressure and pressing me for a name. They're like, what's the frog's name? I'm like, the frog doesn't have a name. It's a specimen <laughs> yeah. in this research collection. We don't name the frogs. And they kept calling and asking for a name. And finally they were like, look, our readers will connect to this story more if it has a name. And if you don't have a name for it, we're going to come up with one. And so then I was like, well, I mean, it's not a name, but my son calls him Tuffy. And, and they're like, how does he spell that? And I was <laughs> like, well, he, he's three. He doesn't spell anything. And so they printed it in National Geographic magazine as Tuffy. And, um, and so that's the story behind that name is that. So it's a, it's a horrible story, you know, but it, it's how he coped with knowing and being able to one of the very few people that was able to see this frog, which was kept in biosecure isolation you know, just to make sure that it was healthy and, and, um, and okay, you know, so he connected to this frog by giving it a name. It's the same exact thing that National Geographic was saying. I was just seeing it kind of reflected in, in my son. And, and then, you know, people did latch onto it once it, it had this name and the story and it definitely generated some interest. Um, now, not as much as if it was a mammal or something like that, but for a frog, it, it did generate some interest. You know, um, uh, an article came out after Tuffy passed that said, frog goes extinct, media yawns. And I thought that was very profound. I actually used that headline in, in some of my lectures. I mean, that's... That's a pretty incredible story. And, um, you know, I, I kept thinking about the, um, there's footage from, oh, I want to say maybe it's 1909 of the last thylacine 
that before yeah. they, it was, I think the last specimen that was kept alive at some zoo in Australia. And I, I wondered like what it must've been like to have been that animal's keeper knowing that this was it. Like once this animal is gone, there, there are no more. And, um, I, I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't say that it was a failure. I mean, yes, it's, it's, it's a very, very sad moment in, you know, human history that we've lost a species, you know, through our own doing. But I mean, at the same token, I think that by giving Tuffy a name, I mean, as much as, you know, I, I kind of agree with you. I, I don't, I don't name my frogs. I don't, you know, my, my kids do, but you know what? It helps my kids connect with them on a different level. So if letting them call one of my frogs, you know, a name or whatever it is, it, it allows them to sort of begin that process that will hopefully develop into a, a greater understanding, you know, but I think that I, I agree with you that the best way to reach people is to, you have to sell it. You have to sell the idea. And if you, if giving something a name accomplishes that end, that you're going to have more money for conservation, you're going to have more grants for research. You're going to have all these things because people can connect to it. That itself is not a failure, you know? And I really, I mean, again, just to, to, to say it again, the, the story is incredible. It really is, you know? And you're right about the media yawning. I mean, for me, it was a huge deal. When I started reading about it, I was very, very, you know, I was very interested in it because to see a species actually do what, you know, people haven't really seen in person in a while. I mean, at the turn of the century, watching the last passenger pigeon die, the last thylacine mm. die, the last quagga die, mm. all these species that people physically saw go extinct right in front of them, to see that moment must have been just, you know, it must have been a horrific experience. But um, I, I agree with you. I think that a lot of issues like that kind of get ignored or swept under the rug. But, I mean... That's where your education, your outreach programs sort of come into is is to sort of, I guess, bridge that space that the media leaves between people caring about conservation and people caring about, you know, all, all sorts of other nonsense that in the grand scheme of things doesn't necessarily mean anything. Right. I mean, what, what, what how do I want to phrase this? Um, I mean, where does the loss of a species translate into something that can, something good that can come out of it. I mean, in your, in your opinion, like what do you think is the best thing we've talked about the worst thing, which is obviously the loss of a species, but what do you think the best thing is about this? Um, that's a, that's a good and tough question. I didn't mean Um, to put you on the spot. I just, I no, it's, it's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it. You know, I mean, it's hard to say, but, you know, increasing awareness, uh, in the, in the general public would be a big one, uh, increasing the capacity to, um, respond and get to these conservation programs before it, you know, it gets that bad. That's, you know, that's another, uh, important thing, you know, is, is making sure that there's support to monitor, um, populations of amphibians so that, that they don't get to this dire situation, you know. And so, you know, like the species that we're working with now, some of them are not in much better shape than Tuffy, you know, and, and that's still kind of too too late. You know, when we're working with species that it's, um, 
we're getting to the point where we have to remove them from the wild, you know, where the best um, strategy is to actually take them from the wild and bring them into captivity. If you get to that point, that's not a good sign. You know, you definitely want to focus on projects that you can work with the species in the wild, you know? Um, so, you know, that, that is another, uh, you know, inspiration from Tuffy as far as like the amphibian conservation community is like, you know, you get heading these things off long before you have a handful of the species, the last of them on the planet in a biosecure metal box somewhere, you know? So I guess that those, those are the two things, you know, uh, that I can think of. Well, I mean, that, that's actually great. I was going to kind of, that actually is going to help me kind of segue into the next question, which was, I mean, obviously it's, it's one thing to be, and I have listeners that, that live in different parts of the world. So I don't want to be biased towards North America, but, um, on a local level, at least in the United States, you have native species that don't necessarily get the attention as, say, an exotic species. I mean, do you think that Tuffy's laws translated well into the preservation of native species in Georgia? Oof. Uh, only for the most ecologically minded people, you know. Um, so I, I think it is powerful in, in for some people in, like, um, you know, to go back to Jill Sartori again, he's, he's been a huge advocate, um, both for amphibian conservation and also for our foundation, you know, he's extremely supportive. Uh, and then, uh, 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 Leilani Munter, a now retired NASCAR driver actually had Tuffy on her car, like a picture. Really? Actual frog. Yeah. And so, and she wrote an article about uh, him. She actually came to meet him while he was still alive and wrote an article and it was really profoundly titled The Loneliest Frog in the World. Um, and it was, you know, so he'd, he'd only been heard calling, I think, three times, you know, and then if you think about why that frog was calling, that's just profoundly sad he's trying to find a mate and nowhere on the planet was there a mate for this poor frog yeah it's 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 it, it is a heartbreaking story you know and it's i mean i'm at a loss to even really describe it i mean i know that you had a obviously a very very personal involvement with the situation and, you know, I can, it must have, I mean, for you as, just as an individual, this experience that must have been awful. But, I mean, in terms of, like, not to, not to get off topic, but, um, I mean, earlier we had discussed how, um, you know, you would, you would remove native species from Georgia and you would sort of keep them in captivity to sort of circumvent what happened with Tuffy. I mean, what, what threats are facing native species in Georgia? I mean, is it anything that's different from other parts of the world, or there are there unique issues in Georgia that are adversely affecting the amphibian populations there? Um, yeah, that, that's another great question. Thank you. Um, oh, thank you. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is what it's all well, about, you know, so... Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, so, you know, Tuffy's 
in all the other Panamanian species we were working to conserve, you know, the big problem for them was this novel, novel to them, chytrid fungus um, that they had never seen before and had no resistance to. So that is not really an issue here in the southeastern United States. I mean, we've detected chytrid in lots of the native populations here. Uh, including some of our conservation target species, but it doesn't really seem to bother them, um, which is great because they have so many other issues fa- that they're trying to uh, face. You know, so the, uh, the the species we primarily focus on here in the southeastern U.S. Uh, are gopher frog, uh, flatwood salamander, and striped newt, and these are all tied to the longleaf pine ecosystem and so right off the bat that ecosystem is it's, it's an endangered in ecosystem there's three percent left from the historic range of that longleaf pine ecosystem so really any species that that is, relies on that dynamic ecosystem is is in trouble um and then inside of that ecosystem, there's a whole another host of, of problems with um, burning. You know, that's a, a huge problem for these poor animals that are just trying to get by. And the remaining three percent, you know, this is a uh, uh, system that relies on wildfires. You know, so they've this whole thing, including all the animals, have evolved alongside of somewhat predictable wildfires and they that not only do they thrive in in systems that burn regularly but they they have adapted to it you know like that seems kind of crazy that this little salamander needs its its home to be burned pretty frequently you know every year every other year uh maybe every three years so uh when we prevent that from happening it's a big problem for these species because their habitat changes and then no longer is suitable um so that's a a big problem for them too yeah um so those are just a few there's more more threats yeah i mean you wouldn't think something like fire would be I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. Yeah, it's it's re- no, no, no. It's really surprising and tricky to think about that. And and you know, and it's been understood now for a while that these uh, the the longleaf pine ecosystem needs to be burned regularly. So there are lots and lots of prescribed burns, controlled burns uh, throughout the the range now. But you know, those bur- burns are typically done in the winter when it's easier for us to control a burn whereas naturally those burns would occur in the summer uh, when lightning strikes would cause these fires so the animals aren't you know they're they're up and active when we're in there burning and we're actually burning up these species you know they are underground in the summer when the wildfires would occur naturally they can be safe in gopher tortoise burrows and other places underground. But in the winter, 
they're up, that's when they're active. That's when their breeding season is. So we've had times where we've detected eggs from flatwood salamanders, very endangered species. And then the next week they were burned up. And you're just like, geez, we, we all need to get on the same page here for these things or they're going to be gone. Yeah, that, that's, it's, it's funny because you wouldn't think something like fire would have so much of a significant impact on a very, very small amphibian. Um, I mean, well, actually, well, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. in, 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 I know in Europe it was sort of a legend that fire salamanders would actually come from fire, but I guess people postulated that they would, people <laughs> would throw wood on a fire and they would just be in there saying, oh, I want to get out of here, and then they would leave, but... It's yeah. interesting to see how, yeah. you know, how we get things completely backwards sometimes. You know, like what you said about the prescribed burns being at the complete opposite of when we would need them to be helpful. Right. Um, I mean, what, you know, I mean, are there any other additional threats besides that that are, like, concerning to you? Because where I live, we have, um, we have a lot of issues with, with water quality. Now, uh, I won't you know, get into it too much, but the place where I live, we have, you know, we have our own weird setup on Long Island when it comes to water, but, um, the area that I live in, the water is extremely contaminated and it's very, very likely that that had a distinct, you know, impact on amphibian populations. Because when I was younger in the, in the early eighties, there were frogs everywhere you could find salamanders, you could find toads, you could find all these things. And our water quality mm-hmm. has deteriorated. I mean, people don't, people don't want to admit it, but it's true. It, it, it is. And that's been kind of a, you know, a, a, a big issue here with amphibian populations. I mean, do you, how is like pollution and other things down there? I mean, do you, do you have issues with like pollution and contamination and other things like that that could be affecting them? Oh, absolutely. I mean, here in Metro Atlanta, um, our streams are in really horrible shape, you know. Um, and so we're we're looking at it in a couple of ways. I mean, in, in my mind, it's the, the contamination, the pollution, the litter, but also the sedimentation, you know, that's really choked out these poor streams and just destroyed habitat for all these little salamanders, it's, it's really hard to find them in there now because there's nowhere for them to be. Um, but this summer, you know, we've, we've, re, uh, restricted our, our long range field work and we've been working in house a lot more on the, on the, on our property. We're on the nature preserve, uh, the blue heron nature preserve, and there's two streams. So we've been doing stream cleanup, uh, surveys where we are monitoring for amphibians, then doing a stream cleanup. We've removed, um, I think, close to 10,000 pieces of litter at this point. Uh, and then we're, we come back through for a sweep, and we're going to ultimately, hopefully, have a nice data set that can kind of correlate the presence of all this trash and, and healthy amphibian systems. So uh, it, it can be a big problem. Water quality is probably one of the main factors here in Atlanta. The uh, another one that doesn't get mentioned enough in my mind are, are um, these outdoor pet and feral cats, just wiping out hundreds of millions of North American amphibians every year. Hundreds of millions a year. That's just an uns. 
a sustainable number of amphibians and at some point they're just going to be gone. Yeah, I can definitely see that as being, you know, being an issue. We we do have feral cats here, but we don't have it to the the, the extent that other other parts of the country does. But, you know, it's funny because you think of, you don't necessarily think about a domestic animal as being an invasive species, but they are. So I think yeah. that one of the other things I, you know, in my travels talking to other people is, oh, my, my cat caught a frog. What do I do? Well, you're kind of, don't let it happen again. You know what I mean? You might not necessarily be able <laughs> yeah. to intervene on that frog's behalf because I've seen, you know, I've seen local frogs. I mean, we have... Uh, we we have gray tree frogs. We have spring peepers. We have bullfrogs. We have we have there's, there's a few species here that are actually in, you go to the right place they're fairly abundant, and you'll see mm-hmm. um, someone's cat kind of you know they they caught like a gray tree frog which is relatively small and it's like well there really isn't a tremendous amount you can do for this but maybe it might be smart to you know keep the cat inside and not allow it to engage with, you know, I'm trying to say this as tactfully as possible, but I know that there's cat people out yeah, there in the well, audience, but, yep. um, you know, <laughs> just try to, try to eliminate the problem. The, the best mess to clean up is the one that you don't make. So yeah. I, I think that that's also a, a definitely a very valid concern is, um, you know, the impact that domestic animals have because here in, here in New York, there was actually a study done. I, I wish I could cite it, but I can't, but, um, a group of scientists went around studying cats because they wanted to see what the relationship was with the, with the rat problem. And mm-hmm. the the idea was that introducing cats was going to reduce the rat problem. Well, what happened was it didn't reduce the numbers of rats, but it actually reduced the number of times that people saw them because the rats weren't actually afraid of the cats, but they just sort of didn't want to be bothered by them. So they actually would just kind of disappear. So the cats actually weren't doing anything. They weren't eliminating the rats. They were just forcing them to hide. So people got this erroneous data thinking, that, oh, well, the rat population is down. It's like, no, you're just not seeing them. But, again, that's another pressure. The rats are smarter now. Yes, they've, le- they've learned. So um, now could you tell us okay. about some of some of like the, I guess we call it continuing edu- education programs for not just for, for younger people but for adults? I know that you have the uh, almost like a herpetoculture master class that's going to, I think you do it in person and then it's going to be online as well. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, yeah, most of our programs are for kids and those are run by my wife, who's the co-founder, uh, Crystal Mandika. She's the co-founder of the Amphibian Foundation. And, uh, I have been focused on kind of these, uh, adult programs. And uh, we started with, um, this program that we call the Master Herpetologist Program. So that is kind of based on on some of these other programs we have here in the area, like Master Naturalist and Master Birder. Um, and so, you know, we have a very good relationship with um, like the state herpetologist at Georgia DNR and and some other conservation groups. So we thought, hey, it would be really nice to do a master herp class um, focusing on the herpetofauna of the southeast to cover uh, natural history, biology, conservation. Um, and, it, and I just knew it was going to be a great class, and it, and it is. And then having it co-taught by all the, these authorities um, really gave it a lot of, a lot of strength. And so um, we, uh, we offered it. We've been offering that class for 
a couple of years now. And every time I would post it online, I would get inquiries for, hey, when are you going to teach this online? And I couldn't really figure out a way to do that because the master herb class here is like very hands-on and there's a, a field component. Um, and then we have a you know graduate luncheon and stuff. So none of those things translate well to online. But, you know, I kept, kept getting all these requests. And um, so then I basically just kind of put the feelers out because I've been at this point doing this a while and I have a lot of friends who are herpetologists and I put the feelers out and who would be interested in contributing to an online class. I got a lot of great feedback. So, you know, we have for the uh, in-person class, we have three teachers. And then for this online class, we have 30, you know, and the 30 teachers is a lot to organize, but it's great because they're from all over the world you know, doing all sorts of uh, research on very specific things. So we have really kind of broad general topics like uh, in basic biology of frogs, for example, but then we have a lot of very specific uh, research projects that, that uh, the instructors go into in some depth. So people get a really good picture of you know some uh the broader strokes and then some very specific deep dives and also kind of what it what it is like to be a herpetologist and the kind of projects that you can do and so and then they end up with a nice list of of connections of of herpetologists from all around the world so i was really impressed with how well the course is shaping up because um, I've never offered an online course before either. So when we opened it up, I didn't know how many people were going to want to take it. And then we started getting registrations from all over the world, too. So we have students and instructors from everywhere. You can, include, then, you can include me on it. I actually, I, I did, I signed up for the online one in the fall. <laughs> so I'm looking, great. I'm looking forward well, to it. Well, you know, you'll, that's fantastic because it's going to be, We'll even have more instructors, and we will have worked out some of these technological kinks. So, you know, hopefully, it'll be very, very smooth. Um, but, you know, we we offered the registration opened before all of this coronavirus stuff, so we didn't know what that impact was going to have on it. So, we ended up not uh, capping the registration and, and are offering the class this last semester, we had 250 students. And so that was a scary too, but it's been really tremendous and and a lot of communication and, and we're kind of really great little network of herp enthusiasts from all over the world. So I'm just really, really happy with how the, the class is shaped up. So we just started the last section, which is snakes. So they are going to take the final next and in two weeks. So hopefully everyone will still be smiling at that point. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, 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 I've sort of, you know, ch changed my opinion in terms of continuing education. And I think that, you know, continuing education doesn't necessarily have to be relevant to your chosen path in life, meaning I take professional development for my field, which has nothing to do with frogs whatsoever, other than they're on my property. But 
I think that, you know, being able to engage in programs like this is extremely valuable because, as I said, when we first, you know, started our discussion that there's there's that line and gaining access to someone who might, you know, uh, be a, a world renowned herpetologist unless you're enrolled in a university and you're taking their class, you might necessarily have access to it. So something like this is great because, the, you know, the average person in the community who, you know, doesn't necessarily want to enroll in a, a master's program or a doctorate program, but you still want some of that information. You want to have access to it. And having a master class like this is great because it allows you to accomplish that end without completely, you know, completely going overboard and putting all of your resources into something that you might not necessarily have as a career. So that's definitely, yeah. you know, that's definitely a good thing. Um, thank you. No, you. thank you. Um, I mean, just to kind of, you know, before we kind of wrap up, at the end of the day, do you, on a personal note, do you think that the amphibian populations will recover worldwide? And if so, do you think that we're better equipped to handle the problem now as opposed to the way it was 20 or 30 years ago? And just by that, I mean... You know, in in the early 80s and 90s, concern for amphibian populations sort of became a thing. And I remember mm -hmm. the, I think it was it was an, an Adelopus species. Um, they call it the golden toad. I don't even remember which species it was, but that sort of became the poster child. Zetecki. For... I'm sorry? Yeah. It's Zetecki. Zetecki. Atelopus Zetecki. Okay. My, my scientific pronunciation is often off, but all right. I was close. <laughs> I was in the, I was in the ballpark. Um, mm -hmm. but that sort of became the poster child for conservation and it seemed like a too little too late. I mean, do you think that we're better equipped to, to address this problem and we'll hopefully have a, a, a better outcome? Mm. Um, well, in some ways, yes. Um, I think that we are understanding has improved a lot, um, including how to approach these. So all of our conservation projects are, uh, partner-based with lot, some of them have many many partners and and that's uh great you know and that makes everything better and more powerful and uh having lots of stakeholders and decision makers is is really really vital so that, that and i think that's relatively new um so and that, that is part of our mission is connecting people and organizations to because you know I think it's necessary. That's the only way we're going to get any lasting solutions. So I think the awareness has improved too. So that, that puts us in better shape, but you know, the earth is worse. So, I mean, pre COVID, it seems like um, things have started to take a quick turn for the better during the, the last few months. But um, you know, the, 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 populations are still declining and some of them quite rapidly. So the, the flatwood salamander I keep mentioning, which is our highest priority project. It was our first project. And it's also what our logo is modeled after it was a larval flatwood salamander. So, um, you know, that's declined by 90% only in the last 20 years. So it's, it's in very dire shape. Mm. Well, you know, I mean, hopefully we can look forward to the future as having some positive. I know it's 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 been kind of a negative, <laughs> kind of a negative theme, but I mean, 
yeah at the very least the, yeah the the awareness has changed and hopefully that will you know that that will be fuel for the fire so to speak but i don't know it, it is inherently a very yeah. grim situation it is it must be very discouraging for biologists who are studying these things in the field and just knowing that you know the the end may very well be near but I think that we have to take some pride in the fact that there have been a tremendous, a tremendous number of accomplishments. I mean, even like I said, even, even just awareness. Yeah. Um, I know that there's a, there's a chytrid strain that's been recently discovered in uh, Eurasian salamanders, and laws have been created to sort of, or not necessarily laws, but policy has been created here to to circumvent that from making its way here. So, I mean, mm-hmm. unfortunately, as a species, we stumble we stumble along the way. We have a, a long way to go ourselves, yeah. but I don't know. I mean, in, in any event, it's it's just, it's, it, it is. It, it's not a happy situation. I think that to deny that is is folly, but, eh, you know. it, it, It's pretty bleak, but, you know, what I think what, what you just mentioned is, is part of the reason why I, I put so much stock in the what my wife does to engage these kids you know when you see them get it that really gives us a lot of hope you know um and i feel like that is it's possibly even the most important thing we do is like because you know they don't have the preconceived notions when i'm when i'm talking to a general adult on the street or whatever and i'm t- talking about amphibian declines like i don't really think that they they get it or they understand or they care, you know, but when you're teaching these kids and you're showing them, they're learning about these things for the first time. And then you explain what's happening with the wild populations. Like I I really feel like that is the most important thing that we do. And that gives us a lot of hope, you know, and then they're teaching their parents. um, And it's, it's just really great. So uh, I think that might be one of the things that we can we can say here in, in a positive light, uh, in a hopeful uh, note, because uh, we are right. We've been talking about a lot of bleak and grim things. Yeah, I know. Things I, know. I hope I hope everyone enjoys this, and we're not everyone's not out there all miserable. But <laughs> they, they, these are topics that have to be addressed. You know, to, to deny that it's not yeah. there is, is is wrong, and it is there, and it can be a very very unpleasant thing to talk about. But you know, there, there's a lot of things out there, and unfortunately, this is one of those things that gets ignored. But I definitely yeah. I, I definitely agree with you that you know, reaching younger people, especially with a topic like this, I mean. There's so many, I mean, there has been and there is now and there always will be horrible things that happen in the world. And one of the other reasons mm-hmm. I started this podcast was just to sort of, I mean, just for me on a personal level, was just to sort of get away from all these negative things that are going on in the world and try and focus on something that I was passionate about and hopefully sharing that and reaching other people. And I think that, you know, your program setting out to reach children is it's it, it's a breath of fresh air in some very, very difficult times. And I mean, when I was a kid, we didn't have a lot of these programs. We might have had, you know, I mean, I, you and I are kind of the same age, I think, right? So you know what I'm talking about. When we were kids, mm-hmm. there was there, there was nothing. You might have a nature mm-hmm. center. You might go on vacation. You'd go into a nature center. And some dude with khakis right. would come out and show you a bunch of snakes, and that was it. Now we have programs <laughs> like this. We have community outreach we have all these tools and resources now that i 
you know, 20, 30 years ago, we didn't have this. It just, it wasn't there. There was no information. There was no conservation was sort of a novel idea. And now we have it. And it's nice knowing that young people can actually take advantage of this. And I'm hoping that, that that's going to be, you know, just to kind of piggyback on what you said, that that's really going to be the future. And if we are going to get somewhere in the next 20, 30 years, hopefully our kids are a lot, a lot smarter and more responsible than we are. So, <laughs> Yes. That's what I'm hoping. Yes. Well, mm-hmm. Me too. Um, I mean, I don't know. It's that's that's always going to be our only hope. But um, I mean, wrapping up, Mark, do you do you want to just share your website for us again? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Our our website is amphibianfoundation.org, and we're on you know all the major social networks as well. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, you guys have got a nice Instagram page. Anybody who follows them, I mean, I'm a terrible social media person, but whoever does your photographs for Instagram is, is amazing. I, I tip my hat to that person. So, oh. yeah, no, it's all good right, stuff. So, all right, I want to thank my guest, Mark. It has been a real pleasure, and I hope you guys enjoyed this episode, and we'll get together again soon. 